Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The Greenville Oaks Church of Christ seeks all who need Jesus and together are becoming His fully devoted followers, encouraging and equipping people to love God, love people, and serve others in an ever-growing way of life. Find out more about Greenville Oaks or connect with us online at greenvilleoaks.org. As always, we ask that you subscribe to, rate, and review our podcast. It makes it easier for others to find us. And now, on to this week's message with Lead Minister Colin Peck. I want to read through a story that comes at the end of this gospel, at the betrayal of Jesus, not just by his friends, but also another kind of betrayal we get to in a moment. But this morning is also in some ways the conclusion of a series that's lasted almost five months. We started this all the way back in December as we walked through the birth story of Jesus in the gospel of Luke, and we've continued that all the way until we'll celebrate the resurrection next Sunday. Uh, and so I want to thank you for your, uh, the way you've engaged this series, the encouragement you've given to me. I've enjoyed so much walking through the life of Jesus. And so this morning I want to, I want to tie up some loose ends because I think there's a way to read this story that doesn't account for the way that in some ways this wraps up so much and ties together so much of what we've talked about over the last five months as a, as, as a church family together. So I hope at the end of the sermon, there'll be a little bit of an aha moment, perhaps as you think about all the different places we've been in this story of Jesus and how it comes together uh, in this betrayal story this morning. Uh, Last week, I was grateful for Michelle Collard and her willingness to share her story of betrayal with us that connected us into the story of Jesus' own personal betrayal. And I think that touched many of you as you thought about those experiences in your life. And I'm grateful this morning uh, that another one of our members, Joy Roseberry, has been willing to share another experience that ties in, I believe, well with Jesus' experience uh, this morning that we're going to walk into. So I want us to watch this video. I want to ask you to find yourself in this story again, just as I asked you to last week. Let's watch uh, this video. My name is Joy Roseberry. I'm married to Steve. We've been in Greenville Oaks for 10 or 11 years. We have been in missions and ministry for over 40 years. When his father was 69, he died of cancer. And we moved back to Texas to be closer to his mom and came to a new church. We left the the church that we had loved for so long. But we worked with them for four years and loved those people and they loved us. At the end of those four years, One of the other elders came to Steve and told him because of budgetary matters, uh, they were going to ask us to look for other employment or another church, but they would give us three or four months to do that. But the next day, another elder called us and said that we had been rehired. That was on Tuesday. Close to the end of that week, Another elder came and told Steve that he needed 
to resign and he needed to explain it to the church. On that Sunday, um, they called a meeting and this same elder got up and spoke for 15 minutes explaining to the church our failures and that um, we had not been doing what they had asked us to come there to do. But I think where I felt the most betrayed was that no one else got up and spoke in our behalf. So that was very disheartening, very hurtful, felt very betraying, especially after we had been told that our asking for them asking for our resignation was based on money instead of on performance. Those were the words that had been used. And we left that meeting uh, very crushed, uh, very disheartened. When a church lets a minister go, not only do you lose your livelihood, you lose your friends, you lose your church home. So that is, I think, one of the things that makes this so hard. I had to learn a lesson on forgiveness. That's not always easy to do. I also had to learn to just face up to the fact that if we go through life trying to please everyone, and um, that that's an impossibility. We have to realize that uh, the person we need to please is God. I want to thank you all for sharing that story. And Stephen Joy, I just want to say something to you. We're so grateful that you're leaders in this church. For the shepherds that you are to this church family. You know, as we've walked through uh, Rooted, which is our discipleship experience in our church, this is one of the things we've noticed is as people talk about the pain in their lives, there's personal betrayal that's part of that. There's addiction that sometimes uh, takes hold in families or in the lives of individuals. But what we've noticed that's been a bit of a surprise to us, and it shouldn't be if we think about it, is that many of us have experiences of pain connected to the church. And experiences of betrayal that we have experienced. And I know those stories could be shared around this room. Sometimes this church has been that, or there's been personal betrayal that you felt, or or maybe it's been other experiences, other places. And this morning, uh, I want to talk about that kind of betrayal because Jesus faced personal betrayal. That's what we talked about last week. But he also was betrayed by an institution, betrayed by a system that should have brought justice and failed to. So this morning, I want to speak into... Uh, that experience in our lives of betrayal that we felt at the hands of not being spoken up for, of the just situation not coming in our lives. I want to ask God this morning to bring healing, the next step for us, whatever that may be in those experiences that we've had. Let's pray this morning. Father, I, I it, it hurts me to know that the very... Uh, church you've gathered to be a blessing to the world is sometimes the very place where hurt and pain comes from. 
that in the moments that we needed the church to speak up for us, the church hasn't always done so. That when the church was needed to see us, when we felt unseen, we didn't sense that from the church. It was sometimes the opposite. For the ways that we should have been received well uh, by Christians and, and it didn't seem that we were. God, I pray this morning for those that already feel that sense of going back to those places in their own lives who are here today. I pray you would move powerfully this morning to help us connect with the story of Jesus because we know that you understand what it's like and to begin that process of healing again for us today. I pray this in the name of the healer, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to begin by reading today's story, and then we're going to dig deeper in some different places, but uh, we're going to spend a lot of time going through the gospel of Luke this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, open with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 22, verse 66 is where I'll read. I mentioned this is a different kind of betrayal than last week, but I think it is still betrayal, and it's a betrayal that many of us know. So Luke 22, verse 66. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if if I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you say that I am. And they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have learned, heard it from our own, uh, from his own lips. You know, the religious leaders have been closing in on Jesus for a long time now in the gospel of Luke, as we've been following along. The, one of the first occurrences of noticing their motive behind their actions comes in Luke chapter six, verses six and seven. Listen to this all the way back then. On, on another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Again, in Luke chapter 11, verse 53, listen again to the motive that lies behind these leaders. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. But now in Luke 22, Satan has entered the picture again. He's entered into Judas and they've captured Jesus and they're able to ask the questions that many of them wanted to ask all along. Do you notice the nature of their questions? The nature of their questions are Christological. And what that means is they're trying to get to the identity of who Jesus is. Does he claim to be God? Does he claim to be Messiah and anointed one? This is the nature of their questions. But it's interesting how when they get in front of the political authorities to gain uh, permission to basically do away with Jesus, their questions change, their charges change from the questions they just asked Jesus. Because Pilate's not going to make sure Jesus is killed for some kind of religious squabble. He's going to do that if it's a threat and has political ramifications for him and others. So this is what comes as we read on in verse 1 of chapter 23. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. See, all of a sudden, Jesus isn't some religious threat. Now he's a political threat. He's a threat in his teaching to Caesar, which is interesting what they say about this whole tax thing, because Jesus' own teaching had been, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. It's a false charge. 
And then he goes on to say, you know, you should be concerned for this guy because he claims to be a rival king. Pilate's no dummy. He's been through this kind of thing before. And so he asks a few questions. Verse three, let's keep reading on. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You've said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. See, Pilate sees right through it. He sees no basis for the charges that are being brought against Jesus. But he does find a way to kind of move around and make sure that maybe someone else would give him what they want. He passes him off to Herod. Now, a word about Herod. Herod has been waiting for this moment to be able to convict and get rid of Jesus since all the way back in Luke chapter 9. In that scene, there's this person he's hearing about. He thinks maybe is John the Baptist, but he'd had John killed. And, or maybe some kind of magician who could do magic tricks upon demand. But in, in chapter 13, we find out later on after chapter 9 that Herod wants Jesus killed. The words are right there in chapter 13. So you would expect that Herod would take this moment. This is his opportunity to get rid of the guy he's been trying to get rid of. But watch what happens as we read on in Luke 23, verse 8, when Herod gets that opportunity. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. Interesting language there. From what he'd heard about, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied with him many questions, but Jesus gave him no answers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. And then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither Herod, uh, neither is Herod, for he has sent him back to us. As you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I'll punish him and then release him. Even Herod who had every desire to get rid of Jesus, can't find anything that Jesus has done wrong. So Herod and Pilate are done with these bogus and unjust set of charges against Jesus. Which begs the question, how is it so obvious that they're innocent? With just a few questions, how do they know that there's no basis for the charges? Well, they've been up against other Jewish revolutionaries throughout the, the last few years. There were many that stood up claiming to be Messiah, claiming to be able to take over Rome and and this guy's different. Jesus made no threats. He offered no resistance and said hardly anything in this trial at all. They, they could see that the main reason Jesus was before them was because the chief priests and the leaders wanted to get rid of him. But watch what happens next. And let me say, what happens next doesn't happen without a devil animating this scene. And that was true then, and it's still true today. Verse 18, as we read on. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Now, Barabbas had been thrown into prison for insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appeared to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And for the third time, he spoke to them. Why? What, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, 
I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. In the end, the mob gets what the mob wants. Pilate doesn't believe that Jesus is guilty of anything. But Pilate was tasked with keeping order. And any time law and order become higher priorities than true justice, innocent people will be offered up to the mob in an effort to lower anxiety and to keep the peace. See, a crucifixion is Pilate's way of calming the crowd. A crucifixion is the way it brings stability and homeostasis where there isn't any. A crucifixion is a politically expedient way to get to the end that Pilate had been brought to maintain. And for centuries, innocent scapegoats have been crucified, lynched, disfigured, and done away with, all so that the mob of people can be called. And in an irony of all ironies, the real guy who creates insurrection, the murderer is the one that they want released, and Pilate's willing to do that, even though he knows this man is innocent of all charges. The contradiction in their behavior and their request is lost on these leaders, on the crowd, because when minds are made up, there's no room for reason. Pilate failed Jesus. The criminal justice system of Jesus' day failed Jesus. An innocent man was killed to calm the mob. Jesus certainly wasn't the first to be killed unjustly for that reason. And he's certainly not the last. Now, there are a couple of ways to read this story, just reading it through on first readings. We could read this as a story about the failure of Pilate to do what Pilate should have done, to have brought justice in this situation, to have exonerated Jesus. There's no charges. There's no basis for these charges. And it is a story about that. I think there's other ways to read this story as well. Another way to read this story is how we traditionally have read it, which is this is just <clears throat> what Jesus came to do. Jesus lives so that he might die. And so this is part of how our sins are taken care of. And so if you read it that way, then Pilate and Judas and, and Peter, they're just bit characters in a story that really aren't about them, right? They're just playing their role to get Jesus to where he needs to go. Because Jesus came to earth to die. And so this is just how it had to happen. Those aren't bad readings. Certainly this is about uh, getting Jesus to the cross. And certainly Jesus knows that's where he's headed. And certainly this is about a failure of a system. But there's more going on in this story. And that's where I want to tie up the loose ends of the different pieces that have been going on throughout this series. Because they come together in this scene, I believe. So what are those loose ends that got Jesus killed? Well, some of those loose ends have to do with Herod and have to do with the political leaders but also the religious authorities who are bringing Jesus to be crucified. They're ready to get rid of Jesus, and this is the time it seems that they can get it done. In addition, but I I want you to notice the crowds throughout the story. We've been watching these crowds come and go, right? These crowds are fickle throughout the story. When Jesus is doing his wonders and has his authoritative teaching at the beginning, they see the authority he has, and and he starts to gather them, doesn't he? There's this large crowd that's following Jesus. Some are looking for a sign. Some are looking for more teaching. Some are looking for the true Messiah who will come. So they gather until he starts talking about the cost of discipleship. The minute he starts talking about how everybody has to bear their cross, and this is going to be a tough road ahead, you begin to see them scatter, don't you? 
All the gospels kind of have this ebb and flow to them and the crowds that swell and the crowds that are dismissed and go away where the disciples seem to be the only ones left. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the day when the church traditionally celebrates Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And during the triumphal entry, you remember the crowds come back. Let me read again from Luke 19, verse 37, this story about Jesus' entry. Luke 19, verse 37 and 38, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They lay down their palm branches. They shout their uh, acclamations of praise. They're singing their psalms of ascent as Jesus enters into the city. But just a few days later, less than a week even, in chapter 23, verse 18, I want you to hear again what the same crowd who'd yelled Hosanna yells at the end of the story. The whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, you hear him? crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I'll have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demand that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. What can move a crowd to move from one day shouting Hosanna and proclaiming Jesus king it's only a few days later, yelling, crucify, telling the one who should be bringing justice, no, 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 I don't care what you have to say about the charges brought against him. We want him dead. In fact, release Barabbas because this man, he deserves death. It's a good question, I think. It's a question that takes me back to a story much earlier in the Gospel of Luke. I mentioned this last week. Then in chapter 4, there's a story about Jesus being baptized. Then he's led out into the wilderness. And at the end of that story of temptation, you remember verse 13? We talked about this last week. This is what it says in, in Luke 4, 13. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. And last week, we talked about that opportune time. The next time that Satan or the devil is mentioned in the Gospel of Luke is in Luke chapter 22, verse 3. When Judas, Judas goes to these leaders and he says, it says there, then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, one of the 12. And that's when these events begin to unfold. That opportune time that Satan waits on happens when Judas is willing to betray him. And so Judas betrays Jesus. The religious leaders arrest Jesus and they bring false charges to Pilate and Herod. And then an angry mob calls for his head and Pilate agrees. Now, you can see all this is purely a human chain of events. That's how we tend to see our world today. It's when injustice occurs or when crowds gather together like this. Well, maybe that's just humans at play. But the Apostle Paul always saw more in these moments than just humans who were actors. I want to read from Ephesians 6 because I think in a story like this, as we think about our own betrayals in our own lives, it's important to look at what Paul says because Paul knew betrayal as well. Paul had seen mobs after him. And I think what shapes Jesus and what shapes Paul to respond in a Christ-like way in the midst of impossible situations is this belief right here. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God 
so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul's trying to help the Ephesian Christians understand something important. That in order to see the true enemy that's there, you have to look beyond the enemies you think are there. And this teaching is huge because if you fail to get Paul's point, you're always going to mistake your enemies and your battle. Our battle, church, is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. If you have a battle or a conflict with another person, you have already mistaken the true conflict. You have mistaken the enemy if that enemy has flesh on them. Because your enemy is the force behind the person with flesh on them. It's that force within all of us at times that wants to destroy others. This is one of the most remarkable things about Jesus is the reason Jesus doesn't define Judas or Peter or Pilate or any of these people, even the ones who drive the nails into his hands. The reason he doesn't mistake them as the enemy is because he knows the power of the evil one that's at work within them. And this is why Jesus could demonstrate such profound levels of grace on the cross. You remember what he says? His father, forgive them. Can you imagine? Father, forgive them. Do you remember what comes next? They don't know what they're doing. That's the only place that forgiveness can come for a lot of us. Is to think back on those people who've wounded and hurt us and to realize our battle's not against flesh and blood. Our enemies aren't the people we think they are. If we can keep this in mind, I wonder if incredible grace can pour out from us because the same evil that's been at work in our lives at times and we haven't followed Jesus is the same evil that works behind when betrayal happens, when the church has hurt you, when the system failed you, when the boss didn't protect you. This is where Saturday morning cartoons have thrown us off because when we imagine Satan, we think pitchfork and red suit, right? We think... Halloween uh, uh, costumes or something like that, right? That's, that's Dante's Inferno more than it is the Bible. Now, when the, when the New Testament describes these forces of evil, these forces of evil want to do three things. And I want you to think through these things. A lot of the circumstances in your life that have been brought painful moments, those evil forces at work, the, the, the forces that are behind seek to do three things, to deceive to destroy and to divide. To deceive, to divide and destroy. Judas, think back to Judas. Satan deceives Judas, right? We're not sure what happens to Judas. Some would interpret Judas' story as Judas isn't actually betraying Jesus in a way. He's actually just trying to get the story going forward, right? If he can get the authorities in there, then Jesus can knock them all out and start to overtake Rome. Judas is just getting Jesus' story started because Jesus seems to be more patient than Judas is. Maybe that's it. But regardless of what happens in this story, Satan enters into Judas and he's deceived. And that means he's divided from his purpose and his leader. And ultimately he's destroyed. He commits suicide at the end of that story. This isn't just true in history. It's true in our own lives though, right? Think back to relationships or marriages that we've been through that we're a part of. When one partner is deceived, 
And Satan begins to enter a relationship and bring destruction. Often we begin to think stories that aren't true about the other person. Well, she doesn't love me. She doesn't understand me. He doesn't care about me. And once we're deceived to believe those things, we often don't understand and have empathy to realize that it's not that she doesn't love you. She's fighting battles of her own. She needs support and he's fighting battles of his own. But once we're deceived, then we begin to be divided, right? And once we're divided, we begin to interpret everything through the lens of our deception. And once you're deceived and believe in untruth about another person, it'll lead to destruction eventually. Or think about church culture. But we shun sexual promiscuity in church culture. We'll continue to teach against promiscuity because we believe in covenant faithfulness. But in Dallas, you know what we tolerate? We tolerate church promiscuity. You can go to four churches in 10 years and no one will ask you a question about it. Show me that in the New Testament. But what happens in a church context is someone says, well, I don't like this decision that was made, or I don't like the, the preacher. I don't like what he said about such and such a topic. So we become deceived. We think it's about us and maybe our interaction. And and we can assume that the decision the church made that was wrong was really an assault on us. And we become deceived. And when that happens, we get pulled into something larger. And we start to pull others into our deception. We begin to divide things even further. Hey, did you hear what Colin said last year about the Bible? Did you hear what Colin said last year about race or inclusion in that sermon? I've never listened to him the same since then. And we share these conversations and So once that decision happens, deception moves into division, which moves into destruction. But what Jesus knows is that the powers of evil in the world want to deceive you so they can divide us, so they can destroy us. One of the topics that we need to talk about in in our culture, in our church, that we don't talk about near enough is about pornography which is a way bigger deal than most of us in the church think it is. Here's what happens. Someone feels alone in a relationship or feels isolated from relationship. And once you begin to feel alone, you're susceptible to begin to believe and be deceived into truths that are not actually truths at all. And once you're lonely and susceptible, pornography comes looking for you on your phone, on your computer, anywhere and everywhere these days. It starts at 10 and the assault never stops. And once you've been deceived to think that you're alone and that something will fix it that can't actually fix it, you're divided in your relationships and ultimately destruction is where that's headed. This is the way the evil one always works. is deception, division, and ultimately destruction. And there is no end to the ways that the evil one works into relationships and into institutions and into private lives of people to bring destruction in the end. That is the force that seems and seeks to destroy everything and seeks to destroy us. And it's the same force that's at work behind the scenes to enter into Judas and to arrest Jesus and to falsely accuse Jesus and to create a mob of illogical hate toward Jesus and eventually is what brings to Jesus destruction. But because Jesus knew this, this is why Jesus was able to enter into the life of Peter, into the life of Judas. That's why he was able to be on the cross and say, Father, forgive them. They don't have a clue what they're doing because it's the evil one at work behind it all. And guess what? Just as Jesus didn't define Judas and Peter by their worst moments, you need to know and hear and believe the very same thing this morning. You are not your worst moment. Jesus doesn't see you by your worst moment. There's grace 
for our worst moments. Because there's a lot of good moments along the way. There's a lot of good the Spirit's trying to do in our lives to revive us, to restore us, to bring us to repentance, to bring us to wholeness in our lives and in our relationships. Jesus loved you enough to die for you. Enough to be unjustly accused and not to speak up for himself and not to call 10,000 angels, but to die on that cross for your behalf because you're not your worst moments. Father, forgive them. Not just them who were there. Father, forgive each one of us. Because for the rest of history, the evil one's going to seek to deceive, and to divide, and destroy. And guess what? They don't know what they're doing because our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against those forces that seek to destroy our lives, that seek to divide us from one another, that seek us to go off course of the true purpose that God has put us out for. I hope you'll receive this story this morning is an amazing gift of Jesus who's willing to stand up under this pressure, under this injustice, and to die on your behalf who knows that it's not you, it's the evil forces at work. And we need to do everything we can to put on the full armor of God. But let me tell you, church, there are still systems that betray. Whether that's injustice that happens in court systems, or that's injustice that happens in our world, or that's injustice that happens when the church doesn't stand up and speak up for us. There are all these moments of betrayal when things should go a certain way, and we feel as if we've been betrayed in those moments. And it's in those moments that I want to remind us that all of us are forgiven. All of us are are brought back into relationship. But it's important that we as the people of God always are able and willing to speak up for those who see the same situation pop up in their lives. You know, like, yes, we can see this as Jesus had to go to the cross, but it should also remind us that when there are opportunities to speak up for those who experience injustice, we follow a Savior who was unjustly killed, and we're called to speak up and to make sure that we advocate for those who aren't advocated for. That when we see systems trample on people, we, we go to them and we find them and we bind up their wounds, that we speak up, in the hardest of moments on behalf of those like Jesus who don't face justice. There's a lot of work to do, church, in the world. And this isn't just a story that we look to and we thank God and say, God, thank you that we're forgiven. Yes, we start from that place of redemption. Thank you that you were willing to experience that for us and that we're not our worst moments. But God, may we be a part of a force that's willing not to let that continue to go on. We will advocate and we will speak up because we're ambassadors of the kingdom of God and we push against the forces of evil that seek to deceive and to divide and to destroy. Church, may we find the muscle to do that. We find the courage in our lives to speak up when necessary, to be ready for those moments where the church is called to be the church, whether that's in personal situations we need to do it or that's in larger systemic ways we need to do it. Let me close this time in prayer this morning. God, we, we thank you that Jesus was willing to experience unjust suffering on our behalf and that he was able to look past uh, our failures to see forces at work behind us to know that we don't have a clue what we're doing. God, I think I can raise my hand and all of us can this morning to say in our moments of greatest sin, we didn't have a clue what we were doing. We were caught up in it. And yet, God, sometimes we knew exactly what we were doing. We, we knew what we were walking into and the destruction that was had. And, and God, we need forgiveness for that too. We, we fail you so often. And God, yet you never fail us with your relentless love. So God, we come from a place of gratitude and thanks. But God, we also come from a place to realize that what happened to Jesus should never happen again. 
That it should be the job of the church to step up and to speak up on behalf of any who are trampled by systems or institutions or failures of justice. So God, we're, far, we're sorry for the ways that we failed to speak up on behalf of your son, Jesus, when he was, it was needed. But God, we don't want to continue to do that. So give us the courage, the wisdom, and the muscle to speak up when we need to on behalf of those who experience the same betrayal. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. We hope this message helps you in your walk to find real significance in Jesus. Connect with us on Twitter. You can find and follow us there at Greenville Oaks. Discover more about the Greenville Oaks Church online at greenvilleoaks.org.